The Biden White House is facing another major crisis, and the president is going to have to make a decision on how to defuse this controversy. CNN has the exclusive details, and I will share them with you now. The Biden's dog, Major, has been involved in another biting incident that required medical attention. Two people with knowledge of the incident tell CNN, I love that you don't have to have anonymous sources to find out what the dog is doing. Uh, the incident involved a National Park Service employee. It took place on the South Lawn uh, on Monday, but we're just learning about it now. The employee was working and needed to stop in order to receive treatment from the White House Medical Unit. Uh, Jill Biden's press secretary, Michael LaRosa, told CNN that Major is, quote, still adjusting to his new surroundings. Major himself could not be reached for comment. Uh, yes, uh, says the spokesman, Major nipped someone on a walk out of an abundance of caution. The individual was seen by the medical unit and then returned to work without injury. Now, you'll recall that this is not the first time that uh, President Biden's German Shepherd has bitten someone. And after the last incident, well, Biden denies this, but, you know, he was sent back to Delaware. He denies that he was it was a punishment. He just said, you know, we were out of town, so we went back to Delaware. But he got special training, which is basically like, hey, uh, uh, Major, if you don't want to be exiled from the White House, stop biting people. But now he's done it again. And here's the funny part. At approximately 5 p.m. Monday evening, Major was spotted on a walk on the South Lawn with a member of the White House staff. Reuters White House correspondent Jeff Mason tweeted a short video of the walk. There's actually video of this. Major is leashed in the video, something that has not always been the case. And Jonah Goldberg had a very funny line about this. He said, um, maybe Biden should capitalize on this because if any White House staff member gets out of line or doesn't get with the program, that staffer has to spend five minutes alone in a room with Major. All right, enough barking about this. Uh, I just saw this morning that G. Gordon Liddy has passed away at the age of 90. Now, if you are over a certain age, you know exactly who G. Gordon Liddy was. He was the mastermind of the Watergate burglary. Uh, he wasn't one of the seven burglars, but he was the one who planned it and set it up for the Nixon campaign. And there was this mystique about G, as his friends called him, uh, a mystique about Gordon Liddy. Uh, even Richard Nixon later was quoted as saying he was a little nuts. Uh, he was this super tough guy who never agreed to cooperate with prosecutors and as a result got the longest prison term of anyone involved in the Watergate break-in. Um, he was said in the stories that followed, I never forgot this, that at parties he would put his hand over a flame, like over a candle or something, and his flesh would burn and he would just do it as a matter of will, an act of will. So he was um, not your usual, not your typical Washington character. Uh, I later got to know G. Gordon Liddy in his later years. He became a conservative radio talk show host. I interviewed him for a story. I think I was on, on his show once or twice or I had him on my show. And, you know, it was odd because he, he always lived off this mystique that he was the tough guy, the truth teller. And at the time, he was like a 65-year-old grandfather, you know, who had a kind of a normal life after, in the years after he got out of prison and, you know, created this uh, career of punditry. Uh, so I had a little bit of interaction with the guy who masterminded the Watergate burglary. Some good news to report finally on the COVID-19 front. Pfizer and its partner BioNTech uh, announcing... This morning, I guess, 
that the testing it's been doing, uh, more than 2,000 children between the ages of 12 and 15, has been very successful. The, the, the vaccine, 100% effective in protecting um, preteens, I guess you would call them, against the coronavirus. The CEO is going to submit this to the FDA and try to get the emergency authorization to start vaccinating younger kids. And uh, the effort here is to uh, get them vaccinated before September so they can all go back to school, those who are already not in school. And I'm just, you know, I was a little nervous when I heard about these clinical trials, but I'm glad that they were so successful. And I hope that uh, we can now expand the age of uh, people in America who can get this vaccine. Uh, Quick note here, it looks like the Democratic Party is going to junk the Iowa caucuses and possibly the New Hampshire primary. And I think that'd be a great thing. I think the Iowa caucuses have been a disaster. Let me hasten to say, you know, I've enjoyed going out to Iowa every four years. I like the people of Iowa. They take their duty very seriously. I also love the people of New Hampshire. Again, they're incredibly well-informed when it comes to their term. But I think it has been a distortion to small, largely rural, unrepresentative states. You'll remember uh, Joe Biden got clobbered in Iowa and New Hampshire, nevertheless went on to win the nomination at the presidency. And the reason for this is, is simple. You know, the Iowa caucus, they could never quite get the count. It was it's so complicated, it's completely unworkable. And I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, party leaders are talking about possibly pushing the number three and four states, South Carolina and Nevada, to the front of the primary calendar, or having a whole bunch of states, which could include South Carolina and Nevada, Uh, But I think that would be a mistake to make it a regional primary because you do want to have uh, put an emphasis on retail politicking. Jimmy Carter and Barack Obama would not have ever won the nomination had they not been able to go to Iowa, meet a lot of people face to face. You know, a candidate without a lot of money to spend on TV advertising can still get in the game uh, this way. It's also been true on the Republican side. So I hope that part doesn't happen. But I think you can kiss the Iowa caucuses goodbye. All right. Number one. One of the most bizarre stories I've ever encountered. You know, as a journalist uh, doing this podcast, I try to do a lot of research and I try to bring to you a pretty informed take uh, on what's going on, uh, which you can then agree with, disagree with, but hopefully, you know, we deepen the understanding just a little bit. I have absolutely no clue what's going on with this Matt Gates story. I do think it is an absolutely bizarre story. Uh, the Republican congressman from Florida, a very close ally of Donald Trump, Uh, often makes a lot of news. And I guess before I get into it, I should just say, about 12 hours before this broke in the New York Times, and then a lot of other things happened, there were a couple of stories online saying that Matt Matt Gaetz was considering resigning his seat in the House and accepting a job with Newsmax. And I thought that was strange for this reason. It's not a knock on Newsmax, but it used to be that being a member of Congress was a very big deal and not just a stepping stone to a media career. That somewhat shifted in recent years. It used to be if you had a radio talk show or you were a TV talker, um, you could then use that to try to run for Congress. But now, obviously, it's much more lucrative to be in the media than to get the congressional salary. Not that the congressional salary is all that low. Uh, so I thought that, that's obviously a trial balloon. Is he really going to quit Congress? Then comes the New York Times story, and we'll just start with the, what the Times is reporting. Uh, Representative Matt Gates is being investigated by the Justice Department over whether he had a sexual relationship with a 17-year-old and paid for her travel with him, according to three people briefed on the matter. Investigators, according to the story, investigating whether Gates violated federal sex trafficking laws because a variety of federal statutes make it illegal 
to induce someone under 18 to travel across straight lines, state lines, to engage in sex in exchange for money or something of value. The Justice Department regularly prosecutes such cases. Now, the Times story had a lot of questions that could not be answered. It wasn't clear how Gates met the girl, believed to be 17 at the time of the encounters, about two years ago, that investigators are scrutinizing. And the investigation was opened in the final months of the Trump administration under Bill Barr. And now, obviously, it's the Biden Justice Department that has picked this up. Given Gates's national profile, senior justice officials in Washington, including some by, appointed by Trump, were notified of the probe. Three people said that Gates was 38 years old. It's part of a broader investigation into a political ally of his, a local official in Florida. This is where it gets a little complicated, named Joel Greenberg, who was indicted last summer on a variety of charges, including sex trafficking of a child and financially supporting people in exchange for sex. Now, Greenberg isn't just some guy. He was, he since resigned, the tax collector for Seminole County, north of Orlando in Florida, and visited the White House with Gates in 2019. Now, he's been charged. He hasn't uh, been tried, so he's presumed innocent. No charges have been brought against Gates. The extent of his criminal exposure is unclear. Gates said to the Times that his lawyers have, lawyers have been in touch with DOJ, they were told that he was the subject, not the target of investigation. Quote, I only know that it has to do with women, Gates said. I have a suspicion someone is trying to recategorize my generosity to ex-girlfriends as something more untoward. Okay. Uh, he said the allegation or the investigation, excuse me, was part of an elaborate scheme involving false sex allegations to extort him and his family for $25 million. And this is where it gets bizarre. So either... Matt Gates has got a serious problem, a criminal DOJ investigation about whether he did or did not, you know, spend money to transport a 17-year-old across state lines for the purposes of sex, or in his telling, he is the subject of an enormous um, and audacious extortion campaign. Now, Gates says that he and his father, his name is Don Gates, have been cooperating with the FBI and wearing a wire after they were approached by people saying they could make the investigation go away. Uh, in a follow-up interview with the Times, the congressman said he had no plans to resign, so much for Newsmax, I suppose, and denied that he had romantic relationship with minors. Quote, it is verifiably false that I have traveled with a 17-year-old woman. So that's a stronger denial than the first one, and either it's verifiably false or not. On the other hand, why is this investigation still going on if it is verifiably false? Gates goes on Fox a lot, appears in other conservative media, uh, mentions the Newsmax thing, and, and so forth. Um, and then it talks about this guy Greenberg, who is under indictment, and he has had ties to Gates, to Roger Stone, who of course was himself convicted and then pardoned by Trump on, on allegations having absolutely nothing to do with any of this. Um, Gates sent screenshots of text messages this is an Axios story. Axios was also trying to break the story. Congressman Gates gets sent screenshots of text messages, emails, and documents outlining the alleged extortion scheme, which he claimed was being run by a former DOJ employee. Uh, Gates told Axios, I have definitely in my single days provided for women I've dated. You know, I've paid for flights, for hotel rooms. I've been, you know, generous as a partner. I think someone is trying to make that look criminal when it is not. Well, it is not. If somebody's over 18, if they're underage, if they're a minor, then you've got a problem. 
So then, to add to the bizarreness here, Gates goes on Tucker Carlson's show last night, and he says on Tucker, what is happening is an extortion of me and my family. He talked about his father receiving a text demanding a meeting over this $25 million, you know, demanding $25 million to make these horrible sex trafficking allegations go away. Uh, they were so troubled, they went, went to the FBI. In this interview, he says they asked my dad to wear a wire, which he did with the former DOJ official. Okay. So in the Tucker interview, Gates actually names the former DOJ official who he claims was extorting him. Uh, he said the following, I know there was a demand for money in exchange for a commitment that he could make the investigation go away along with his co-conspirators. They even claimed to have a specific connections inside the Biden White House. I don't know if that's true. They were promising Joe Biden would pardon me. Obviously, I don't need a pardon. And he said, people are smeared to try to take them out of the conversation. And at one point, uh, Gates claimed he had had dinner with Tucker Carlson a couple of years ago, and that Tucker had met uh, a woman who was somehow involved in this. And Tucker said he had absolutely no recollection or memory of this. Um, later, Tucker Carlson said, that was one of the weirdest interviews I've ever conducted. And I don't think he clarified much. Now, the last point on this, the Daily Beast has an interview with the former DOJ official, identified as David McGee, who said in this interview with the Daily Beast, he's now a private lawyer, um, that any reports of extortion involving him were, quote, completely, totally false. Quoting again, this is a blatant attempt to distract from the fact that Matt Gates is apparently about to be indicted for sex trafficking underage girls. So there you have it. That's everything I know about this. It's hard to know who's right, who's wrong, what to believe. Obviously, this is a very serious matter involving a member of Congress, and I'm sure in the coming hours and days, uh, we'll learn a lot more about the nature of this investigation and the uh, counter charge or allegation of extortion. All right, number two. It's Infrastructure Day. You know, it was a running joke during the Trump administration. Next week will be Infrastructure Week, and then there'd be some scandal or controversy, and they'd never quite get to it. Well, today is an Infrastructure Day for President Biden. He's giving a speech in Pittsburgh later today in which he will unveil this $2 trillion bill. This is just part of a, it's a two-part legislative uh, step here. And I'm all for infrastructure, but I just want to read you from a CNN online story about this. Here's the headline. With an eye on history, Biden moves on big, bold, and progressive infrastructure package. I'm sorry, that could be a White House press release headline. Uh, it begins, every day he works from the Oval Office. President Joe Biden stares from across his desk at the portrait of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He selected to hang above his fireplace. You can understand what that analogy means. Biden is deeply conscious that now is the moment for him to step up. New York Times also is all in on this. President Biden will unveil an infrastructure plan on Wednesday whose $2 trillion price tag would translate into 20,000 miles of rebuilt roads, repairs to the 10 most economically important bridges in the country, the elimination of lead pipes and service lines from the nation's water supplies, and a long list of other projects intended to create millions of jobs in the short run and strengthen American competitiveness in the long run. Well, the White House has got to love this coverage. Now, in the seventh paragraph of the Time story, the paper gets around to saying, while spending on roads, bridges, and other physical improvements to the nation's economic foundations has always had bipartisan appeal, Biden's plan is sure to draw intense Republican opposition both for its sheer size and its reliance on corporate tax increases to pay for it. 
Then it goes on to say how much money there, you know, $85 billion for public transit, $80 billion for Amtrak and freight rail, $42 billion for ports and airports, $100 billion for broadband. Anyway, the seventh paragraph is the key paragraph because this may not pass or it may not pass in anything resembling its form. The question is going to be how to pay for it. And not only do you have Republicans to worry about, but if Joe Manchin has objections to the sheer size and scope of this, he could single-handedly sink it because the Democrats only have 50 votes in the 100-vote Senate, right? Now, look at the difference in the way the Washington Post covered it. Uh, the headline there, White House unveils $2 trillion infrastructure and climate plan, setting up giant battle over size and cost of government. Now, at least that headline tells you that this is very controversial, that there's going to be a giant battle over this, that it may not pass as opposed to, like, what a great and historic and bold plan this is. And it only takes the Washington Post until the third paragraph to say, the administration's promises are vast and may prove difficult to enact, even if the, if the effort can get through Democrats' extremely narrow majority in Congress. That's a much more realistic take on another $2 trillion after the last $2 trillion uh, that Biden spent on COVID aid and an economic package. Just an aside here, this is an unrelated piece of legislation, voting rights. We've talked about this. You've heard a lot about this. And uh, the New York Times has a, a more candid piece on that. And again, it has to do with how difficult it is to pass anything through the Hill. So the Times says about the big H.R. 1 voting rights bill, while few Democrats are willing to publicly say so, the details of the 800-pound bill um, have become a point of simmering contention. Some proponents argue Democrats should break off a narrower bill dealing strictly with protecting voting rights to, you know, basically get this through the Hill. As currently written, this is fascinating to me, the bill constitutes a sweeping liberal wish list. Well, the COVID-19 bill was a sweeping liberal wish list as well, but they used reconciliation to get it through with zero Republican votes, including restoring voting rights to felons who have served their sentences, making it easier to register and vote, reining in undisclosed campaign donations, so-called dark money, securing elections against cyber attacks, and ending the partisan gerrymandering of congressional districts. It was drafted as a statement of democratic values during the last Congress, when, of course, it had no chance of passing. So that is, you know, this is the thing with Biden's go-big philosophy. These bills tend to become Christmas trees. Well, while we're at it, let's get rid of gerrymandering, dark money, let's do this. Let's let felons vote. And that makes it more and more controversial. In other words, people who are actually even for voting rights could say, well, I don't know about giving felons the right to vote. I'm not saying it's a terrible idea. I'm just saying these things are controversial. And it would be easier, you know, I guess the Biden White House view is, you know, we have one shot here. Who knows if we're going to control um, the Senate two years from now? Let's go big. Let's get everything passed that we want. But then you can't claim any bipartisanship because you're, there are enough provisions there to turn off Republicans, not to mention more um, moderate senators such as Joe Manchin. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three. Okay, Republicans, this is a Washington Post speech. You know this whole fight now that's emerging about the vaccine passport so there's this idea that as more and more Americans get vaccinated, that it will be a great thing, and I can't wait to see uh, more and more people do it, that the government would provide a passport that would enable you to show, hey, I got the vaccination, and then I maybe can be included in more things. Well, this has been seized upon 
by Republicans who are attacking this as sort of big government out of control. The Washington Post lead says that businesses would use these so-called passports to determine who can safely participate in activities such as flights, concerts, and indoor dining. So I don't know if you're a restaurant, if you're an airline, and you want to say uh, if you didn't get vaccinated you know, later in the game when everybody who wants a vaccination will be able to get one. Um, that we only want people to be vaccinated. The businesses, I guess, would have that right. Do you want government involved? Because there are all kinds of privacy concerns. So, for example, Florida's Republican Governor Ryan DeSantis uh, says, we are not supporting doing any vaccine passports in the state of Florida. It's completely unacceptable for either the government or the private sector to impose upon you the requirement that you show proof of vaccine just to simply be able to participate in normal society. So other Republicans, according to this Post story, are using more inflammatory rhetoric. Marjorie Taylor Greene calling the passport idea Biden's mark of the beast. Others comparing it to Nazi policies to identify Jews. Okay, that seems a little bit of a stretch. Hypercharged rhetoric aimed at um, getting rid of any effort by the Biden administration and private companies to develop a standard way for Americans to show they've gotten the coronavirus vaccine. Now, this builds on work from HHS to assure that in-development passport data systems meet privacy and accessibility standards. So they are worried about privacy. Um, now, some companies, including Microsoft, including the WHO, which is a World Health Organization, are pursuing a range of possible systems, working with IBM and the state of New York. I guess I would just say this for people who think this is crazy and nuts. I mean, we have some form of that now. Your kids can't go to school unless they can show that they've been vaccinated for things like measles and chickenpox. Um, you often have to show that you pass minimum health standards in order to do certain things. Now, should it be one nationwide system? Maybe not. Would it be better if private businesses were taking the lead here? I think so. Um, you know, private businesses do have the right to say we're not, you know, you don't have the right to discriminate on the basis of you know, race or gender or sexual orientation or any of that. But if you're a private business that, you know, or college or something, it could be shut down if there's a big uh, COVID-19 breakout. Um, I suppose you would be within your rights to say, uh, you know, just as a public school can do it, we want our college students to be vaccinated. We want people on our airline to show they've been vaccinated. You know, you can get the vaccine free of charge, so it's not a, a financial issue. I'm still sort of thinking through what I think about this, but clearly uh, many on the right do not like it. All right, number four. Hunter Biden has a book coming out in just a few days. Uh, reviews are starting to appear. A lot of it, the most of it, is about him being an addict. Here is a paragraph from the Hunter Biden book, Son of the President. I'm a 51-year-old father who helped raise three beautiful daughters. I've bought, I've bought crack cocaine on the streets of Washington, D.C. and cooked up my own inside a hotel bungalow in Los Angeles. I've been so desperate for a drink that I couldn't make the one-block walk between a liquor store and my apartment without uncapping the bottle to take a swig. Um, in five years, my two-decades-long marriage has dissolved. Guns have been put in my face. At one point, I dropped clean off the grid, living in $59 a night Super 8 motels off I-95 while scaring my family even more than myself. So this is Hunter Biden coming clean, so to speak, about all the troubles in his life. Um, he also talks about his secret relationship, the one that broke up his marriage, with Hallie Biden, who was the widow of his older brother, Bo. So after her husband died, and that was in 2015, um, 
Bo uh, Hunter took up a relation with her that ended up breaking up his marriage. Now, the only thing most of the media are going to care about is what does it have to say about, you know, the thing that became the subject of the first impeachment. Because this is a $2 million book reportedly from Simon & Schuster called Beautiful Things. Uh, apparently, there's 18 pages on this that, according to the New York Times, it looks like a, reads like a research paper compiled by a reluctant student. Was Biden deported to the board of Burisma because of his last name? Perhaps, he writes, but, quote, my response has always been to work harder so that my accomplishments stand on their own. Did he display a lack of judgment? No. Would he do it again? I did nothing unethical, and I have never been charged with wrongdoing. So he defends himself. He doesn't give any ground to the critics. I obviously haven't seen the book, but this is what the write-ups say. Um, I think this, you know, on the one hand, he was the son of the vice president of the United States when this stuff was going on. I think he exhibited extremely poor judgment. This was absolute influence peddling. There's no other way to put it. He's obviously, he's admitted that in the past. I think this is an effort by him, not only to make some money, clearly, but to get people to view him in a more human light that he has been struggling with addiction. Um, and I understand that. Uh, it doesn't let him off the hook. And I think he doesn't claim, according to one of the accounts I read, that this should let him off the hook. No, what, what he said was, excuse me, um, there was, of course, in 1972, the car accident um, that killed Joe Biden's first wife and one of his daughters. And Hunter Biden writes about that, naturally. He doesn't say that that set him on the path to addiction or sleazy ways of making money. Um, but, you know, I guess people uh, can buy this book if they want to read it. Uh, the media have a right to ask, well, what do you, what do you have to say about the influence peddling, the, the negotiations you had in China, influence peddling in Ukraine, aside from your struggles with Coke and crack and liquor, uh, and I guess the answer from this book is not much. Is this con going to complicate life for President Biden? Is the media focus on it? Sure. Um, but that's the decision that Hunter Biden made. Uh, number five, uh, The Atlantic has a fascinating piece. I've always been just sort of mesmerized and, and left unsettled by when Trump first ran in 2016 and during his four years as president how many people unfriended each other on Facebook or were no longer friends because politics came to interfere in their relationships. So here's the piece in The Atlantic. And it starts out by saying, look, American political discourse wasn't exactly harmonious five years ago, but over the course of Donald Trump's presidency, it corroded even further. And ultimately, uh, there have been silences that have arisen when two people stopped talking entirely. So lead example... Mary Ann Luna and a dear friend of hers from her federal government job. By the time their relationship ended, after disagreements about Trump and the severity of the pandemic, Luna, a 74-year-old who lives in Gilbert, Arizona, and her friend, had three decades of shared history. They ate lunch with each other every workday for about 15 years. They once went on vacation together. When Luna's daughter got married, her friend hosted a celebratory brunch. And they didn't used to talk about politics, but in 2016, Luna says... Her friend started parroting Trump in daily conversation, making racist remarks, questioning Luna's news sources. As her friend kept this up, Luna tried to get her gently to redirect the conversation. The communication didn't get confrontational until last year, when, among other things, her friend sent her a prayer for Trump, which upset Luna because her friend knew Luna didn't like Trump. So that was the end of the friendship. 
in a Reuters poll, uh, this is back in, after uh, Trump's uh, victory in 2016, 16% of respondents said they had stopped communicating with a friend or family member because of the election. Other examples, Corin Goodwin, a 53-year-old communications consultant in Seattle, hasn't seen her dad since October 2016 when they had a falling out over the presidential race in which he supported Trump and she supported Hillary Clinton. Since then, they've had only occasional email contact. When he passes, I don't know if he will even be informed, which freaks me out, Goodwin said in this interview. Uh, the reporter couldn't get in touch with the dad in this case because they weren't people who were being interviewed were uncomfortable, so he couldn't get the other side. But um, a woman named Donna in her 60s who lives in Utah told The Atlantic that after acrimonious family arguments on Facebook, her daughter informed her that because Donna supported Trump, she'd no longer be able to see her granddaughter. And in the past four years, she hasn't, except for a 10-minute interaction at the funeral of a family member. This stuff is just heartbreaking. And it's it, look, you have to assume that if friends break up over politics, if family members have become estranged over politics, that there are other underlying reasons as well, that maybe this is not the only reason that you can. You certainly can't blame Donald Trump for this. But Donald Trump is no longer president. And you would think if uh, friendships and family relationships got ruptured because of very, very, very strong feelings, pro and con, about the 45th president, that this would be a time for reconciliation. You know, he's no longer in office. He's no longer running the country. He's still active, obviously, on the political scene. And I didn't see anything in this piece, maybe there was, and I missed it, where people were now getting back together and saying, you know what, this is crazy for us not to be friends. This is crazy for you not to be able to see your granddaughter. Let's put politics aside. Um, it really says as much about how big a role politics now plays in our lives. In fact, here's a communications professor quoted as saying, political identity now encompasses so many other things, our social identity, our morals, our values. And so, in other words, whether you like or don't like Joe Biden or Donald Trump or the governor or whatever, it stands for so much more than just that particular slice of politics. It's part of your identity, and therefore it's harder for you to maintain a friendship or a relationship with a relative who has very strong opposite views. But man, it may be sad to read this, and I just wanted to share it because I think it's part of the fallout of COVID-19 and the last administration. Again, not blaming anybody, but it's the, it's the fault of the people who let politics come between them. But that's the reality here in 2021. Well, have a great day, everybody. Uh, there's been a lot of strange stuff on this podcast, starting out with Matt Gates and the dog and ending up with people not talking to each other. But this is the world in which we live. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you tomorrow with more Media Buzzmeter. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.